All right, church, well, you can take out your Bibles. It'd be one of the church marching our way through the book of Acts. And this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 15. And we're going to look at uh, verses 36 through chapter 16, verse 10. And so, again, you'll be greatly helped. I think the words might be, are they up there, Aiden? Okay, great. So you can also follow along on the screen if that's easier for you. Uh, what I'm going to do is just read the text in its entirety. I'll pray for us. And then we'll just dive right in, all right? This is God's word, starting in verse 36 of chapter 15. And some days, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and they sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Verse six. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word as it comes to us this morning. We thank you that as your people, uh, we get to be right here now, Lord, and as we examine your word, we know that we're not alone. Your spirit is with us, and I pray that he would give us the ability to see your truth. Lord, your truth, which we believe to be eternal, Lord, and we ask that you would write it on our hearts. Lord, shape us, form us, help us to be the people you've made us to be because of it. I pray that your word this morning would comfort us, that it would convict us, and that it would challenge us, Lord, as we follow you. We love you and we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, some of you know this truth all too well. Work is a part of life. It's just a part of being human. We grow up, many of us, watching the adults around us work. We learn the value of work as we see it happen. We grow up making plans of the type of work that we would one day do. And then, when we're all grown up, we spend day and night, maybe, at work, only to come home 
and find more work. Work in the yard, work in the home, work in the marriage, work with the kids. Work is a part of life. I was reminded of this truth, as many of you, I'm sure, have been recently, as I found myself out in the last couple of days raking leaves. God bless the city of Iowa City and their wonderful curb sweeper, leaf sweeper, picker-upper thing. It's really awesome. But got to get the leaves to the curb for it to work, right? Got to put in some work. And uh, the trees are beautiful this time of year. My camera roll is filled with one glorious-looking tree after another. Um, But yesterday, as we were raking leaves, my son said this to me, these trees are beautiful, but they are a lot of work. It's true. Booker T. Washington is famous for having said, nothing ever comes to one that is worth having except as a result of hard work. Many of us know the joys and the wonders of this world, and we've experienced them, um, and they have caused us to work, to do just that. You know, last week, as we looked at the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council, which was, the council put forth a simple question, and this question was this, is Jesus's work enough? Is what Jesus did on the cross, is it enough? They were responding to a claim that circumcision was required to be saved, that there was an additional work that was to be done. Gentiles had to first become like the Jews. Is that right? Well, it was Peter who stood up in verse 7 to respond to this suggestion, declaring that the heart is actually cleansed by faith alone. And concluded his comments by declaring in verse, uh, which verse was that verse? Sorry, I lost my track here. In verse 11, that we believe that we have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you trust in Jesus alone and the work that he accomplished on the cross, the answer was yes, Jesus's work is enough. Put your faith in Jesus alone There's not not in the law, not in the work of man, and you'll be saved. This is the message of the gospel, the the message of his grace. His work is sufficient. Salvation is the result of the work of Jesus, period. One of the things that we have seen over the book is that while receiving the gospel of Jesus is free, Spreading the gospel of Jesus comes at a cost. In other words, it takes work. It takes work. And this morning in Acts 15, 36 through 16, 10, God invites us to roll up our sleeves and to join him in the work that he is doing this very day. Today's text covers sort of three different vignettes, three different stories, three different types of, in each of these stories, these vignettes, they they include types of complexities or challenges that we as God's people face when we enlist in his kingdom expanding work. 
The first challenge is that of a sort of relational work. The second one is a sort of cultural work. And the third story teaches us about a sort of theological work that we have to do as we roll up our sleeves and participate in spreading the gospel. Receiving the gospel of Jesus is free. Jesus has done the work, but spreading it comes at a cost. And he invites us to participate in the work with him. So verse 36 to 41, let's look at the relational work that Paul does here that we see here in these verses. We see as we consider the relational work that as they spread the gospel of grace, this is the sort of truth that we, we take away from this. As these individuals spread the gospel of grace, they discover that working with people is messy. I don't know if any of you can relate to that or not. Working with others for this great and noble thing is messy. Now, in this section, sections 15 to 18, chapter 18 to 15, sorry, 15 to 18, this is Paul's second missionary journey. And what we're told here in this, these verses is that this work is super compelling. It is good, good stuff. The plan that they have is really fantastic. Look at it in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where, they, where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is a noble task. This is good work. As we read through the section, verse 5, we see that things go, they happen according to plan. So verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers and daily. And then again, at the end of the section in verse 10, we see that they continue to preach the gospel as they continue on. This is the plan that we have seen from our beginning of the study of Acts. King Jesus is advancing his kingdom as his spirit-filled people proclaim his word to the world around them. Here, this section tells us how that 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 kingdom breaks into Europe. Throughout the book of Acts, King Jesus, we see, is on the move. He's moving. He's at work. And here again, God's people are embracing his mission. Just because this is part of the plan, we are often tempted, because they're participating in this wonderful plan, we can often be tempted to think that it will be easy. God's word, this example, shows us it will not Leaking arms with other believers for the purposes of God while it is good, noble, and right. It takes work. You might be thinking, well, what could go wrong? Answer, a lot. A lot could go wrong. Paul and Barnabas so far have been missionary partners as they have expanded God's kingdom around this territory. And Paul suggests this wonderful plan to Barnabas. It's a good, good plan. They don't disagree on the intent, on the purpose, on the mission, but what they do disagree on is on the method, who they take. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. He wants John Mark to join them. Now, remember, John Mark was with them already. In chapter 13, John Mark abandoned them. Chapter 13 of 15 in Pamphylia, he left. After experiencing such a huge response to the gospel, remember they saw this amazing response in Cyprus, we're told that John Mark departed and left. We don't know why. He left. Was he sick? What was the journey to just, did it just take too much out of him? Was there some good reason? Was there a disagreement? We have no idea. Was the road too strenuous? We just don't know. But what we do know is that his decision to abandon Paul and Barnabas left a bad taste in Paul's mouth. Paul did not like it. So bad that when Barnabas suggested that John Mark would join them for round two, Paul immediately 
shuts it down. No way. He's left us once before. Why would we take him again? Now, as we consider this disagreement, it's called a sharp disagreement that these two individuals have, you might be tempted to ask yourself, who's right? Who's right? Well, the reality is, as you consider both of their perspectives, you can make a strong case for either one. For, For Paul, certainly. Listen, John Mark does not have the best track record. He's abandoned us once. He's proven a failure. Why would we take him again? He'll abandon us when things get tough. When we need him the most, he might not be there. What if we find ourselves facing trouble or need? We have to have somebody with us that we can depend on. Certainly, any one of us could understand that argument and have probably made a similar argument before. Makes sense. But you could also understand from Barnabas' perspective. For, for one, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. So he was loyal to his family member. He, he wanted him to join them. But more than that, it wasn't just that he was loyal to him. Isn't the message that we're spreading, didn't we just establish that it's a message of grace? The message that we're not accepted by God based on our resume, in light of our failings, we're accepted by God. And if anyone should know this, you could almost hear Barnabas saying this, it should be you, Paul. You were the persecutor after all. And now you've gotten a second chance. And now you're the great preacher. You should know this, Paul. I mean, look at Peter, the rock upon whom the church was established and built. Three times he betrayed our Lord and Savior. But look at him now. He's being used by God to build this church. It's a good argument, right? It's a great argument. From what we can tell, neither of them are necessarily wrong. But their relationship is messy. It's messy. See, the truth is, church, disagreements happen all the time, even in church, even among Christians. Disagreements happen. Some of you might be shocked by that. Some of you are not shocked by that. Some of you might be in the middle of a significant disagreement right now. And maybe a strong case could be made for you and whoever you're having a disagreement with. This should bring us some degree of comfort this morning. I know it does for me. As one scholar put it, reflecting on this disagreement, he says, I'm greatly comforted when I read this. If I have never read, if I had never read that Paul and Barnabas had a contention, I should have been afraid. For these two were men. They weren't angels. They were men. There's a phrase I like to say a lot around here. Maybe you know it. Wherever there is people, there is poop. (laughs) Guaranteed. You can take it to the bank. Wherever there is people, problems will follow. And you have to find a way to deal with it. 
Think of the second go-round of Woodstock. They didn't find a way to get rid of the poop. It was the reason why the whole music festival crashed and burned. It was terrible. Wherever there is people, there are poop. There is poop. You gotta deal with it. It's a reality. Some of us are here today, know that relationships can be messy. Disagreements happen. Difficult relationships, hard conversations. Pain of relational conflict and the reality of separation that intense disagreements can cause is very real. You're not alone this morning if you are struggling with a messy relationship. See, the truth is, all Christians. Now, we have a temptation to act like this is not the truth. Many of us are guilty of this. I know I am at times. But the truth is, every one of us walks with a limp. Every single one of us. And we are all equally dependent on God's grace. Every single one of us. The word here for Sharp disagreement denotes violent action or emotion. This is not a casual conflict. This is an argument full of passion, full of emotion and intensity. This was hard. Think about all that Paul and Barnabas got to be a part of God doing. The great work that they got to experience. They got to see firsthand the adversity that they walked through as they took the gospel to different communities around them saw God move in extraordinary ways. They saw great fruit come as a result. And here, as we read this disagreement, you can sort of feel the pain that these two individuals likely felt. Pain that God knows exists, but yet he still works through them. We're told a great separation comes in verse 39 to 41. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Remember, that's where Barnabas and John Mark were from. And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So the church is aware of this, and, and they both are, are, are being commissioned in different directions. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The, the plan that they had initially set out for in verse 36 still happens in verse 41. Two separate groups going two different directions. Nowhere does it say in the text that they spent time together holding hands and praying. Doesn't say that. Discern the Spirit's direction and the confirmation of their decision to separate in part ways. One, one con commentator notes that the omission of a harmonious conclusion indicates the unstated but undeniable failure of two of the greatest souls the church has ever known. This was hard. It was messy. But God used it to advance his purposes. Hopefully that brings you some degree of comfort this morning. Maybe you're walking through a relationally hard time. You're not an anomaly. And God can still use you. Maybe you have failed somebody. Maybe you have dropped the ball. God can still use you. Hopefully that brings you some comfort this morning. I know it does for me. Second thing that I, I think just noticing here is that Paul, the greatest apostle, the, the, the great apostle Paul, 
even though he experienced a messy, difficult failure of a relationship, he was still determined not to go at it alone. See, the temptation would have been, at least it would be for me, okay, that was hard, I'm not doing that again. Maybe guard my heart a little bit. I can do this, what do I need a teammate for? But instead we're told he takes Silas. He could have been tempting to just retreat inward, to say, forget this team thing. I've been burned once, no thanks. I got this. Rather, we're told he immediately chooses another, Silas, and is sent out right away on mission. Silas is a Roman citizen, likely spoke Greek. He was a prophet, it says in verse, chapter 13, 15, verse 32. We would see God continue to expand his kingdom through the continued ministry of Paul. See, church, it's often through the difficulties and failures that God leads us to greater impact. It's the truth. Now, an important note. While relationships are messy and disagreements are inevitable, this doesn't justify you being a jerk, okay? Let's just remember that. This is not your jerk card that you can stick in your wallet and say, okay, it's not, it's not what it's intended for, all right? This is not to be used to justify being a jerk when things aren't just going your way. See, you just read the Bible and you will see that God's heart, Jesus died to make one new man. He loves, he loves us as his people being united. God yet was able to, even though in the midst of this difficult thing, was able to advance his purposes and extend his kingdom. God can use our perplexing, painful failures to bring direction and blessing even to the world around us. Second vignette, second thing we see in chapter, verses one to five of chapter 16. So that's sort of the relational work that these individuals had to go through as they participated in what God was doing, spreading the gospel. Secondly, we see that there was sort of cultural work that was needed. As they spread the gospel of grace, winning others to Jesus, we learn, was the priority. Winning others to Jesus was the priority. In verses one to five, as Paul and Silas head west, they come to Lystra, where they pick up another teammate, a man by the name of Timothy. This is the first place that Timothy is mentioned, but we learn a lot about him mostly through Paul's letters later on. Something about him stands out that Paul says, I want that guy on my team. In just these few verses, we learn a good deal about him. His mother was Jewish. We learn later that his mom, his mom and his grandmother uh, brought him to grow up and raised him to know and love the scriptures. Likely, they became believers during Paul's first visit in the area. Meanwhile, we're told that his father is an unbelieving Greek. Apparently, there's something about Timothy that displayed significant spiritual maturity that Paul wanted him on his team, so he joins it. But we see that there's a problem. While proving useful to Timothy's presence on the team, Paul recognizes his very presence could be a barrier, could, could provide a, a challenge for the mission that they have set out to accomplish, especially for his Jewish audience. So we're told in verse three that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul has Timothy circumcised out of his sensitivity to the Jewish audience. This might seem, if you've been following with us and reading along in Acts, inconsistent in view of Paul's stand against the legalizers at the Jerusalem Council. But I guarantee you, it was not inconsistent. We know that Paul, at one point, resisted having Titus circumcised, who was fully Greek, when the gospel was at stake. Timothy's situation was unique. It was different. 
Timothy was both a Jew and Greek. And the rabbinic tradition taught that a child born of a Jewish mother and a Greek father was considered a Jew. And Paul knew that Timothy would have, would have constantly offended the Jews if he were not circumcised. It would have been a significant barrier to just get an audience with the Jewish with the Jewish individuals that he was trying to share the gospel with. So as a matter of missionary strategy, as a sign of respect for Jewish heritage, and as a way of maintaining unity between the Jews and the Gentiles, Timothy undergoes a incredibly painful surgery. It costs Timothy something. Just I can imagine coming to this conclusion. It took work to think, think it through. How, how, how do we, you are so useful, but how do we get across this barrier? How do we win an audience with these people given your circumstance? I'm sure they had to labor over this and think it through. In time, Timothy's Jew-Greek heritage would allow him to bring, to bridge different cultures very effectively. It was clear that this was a necessary thing to do. James Montgomery Boyce says this when reflecting on this passage, when the essence of the gospel, because they had just established with the Jerusalem council that circumcision was not needed. But now Paul says, as, as, the, as the gospel marches forward, this is required to gain an audience. Let's do it. It's a matter of strategy. James Montgomery Boyce says, when the essence of the gospel was at stake, Paul refused to compromise at all. However, when the gospel was not at stake, as was the case here, Paul was willing to compromise many things in order to win others to Jesus. So were the, the contents, the essence of the gospel, Paul was inflexible. We are saved according to the grace of God because of the work of Jesus. That's our means for salvation. But he was flexible as he thought about how to communicate that message. He, he, he thought through it. Now, for, for us, as we consider what happened here, the first couple of verses of chapter 16, we, we discover an important missionary application for us today. Paul and Timothy show that their ability here in this situation to become all things to all people in order to reach them with the gospel and to win them to Jesus. He wanted to adapt and be flexible where he could without changing the gospel. And the truth is, church, we should be willing to do the same thing as a means of winning others to Jesus. And thinking through this, how do you do this? It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes work. Namely, along sort of two lines, lots of different ways that you, you do it, but sort of two primary ways. One is it requires us to be in the position of learners. See, Paul had this advantage where he was an expert in all things Jewish. He understood the culture, and he understood that this would be a significant barrier to allowing the gospel to be translated into that culture. He was an expert in what it would take. We as we want to expand his kingdom and communicate this truth to other people around us, we have to see ourselves likewise as learners. Now, this is obvious, hopefully, for those who missionaries who cross international boundaries to share the gospel. Oftentimes, they'll spend years in language learning or in cultural studies. 
so that they can translate the hope of Jesus through their speech and in their lives. But church, this is our task as well. Do you see yourself as a learner of people? If you want to If you want to roll up your sleeves and participate in God's mission to make disciples of the nations, then you have better give yourself to learning about people. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go to a football game, got some tickets, and one of the individuals that went with me was an individual I got connected with through the Friends of International Students, and he went for the the first half. Now, about, now, I, I talked to him before, he's from a different country, and does not, did not understand American football at all, okay? And I, I assumed as much just in our conversation. I asked him beforehand, would, you, would, would this be fun for you? Would you like to go? You know, and he was really excited about it. And about three-fourths of the way through, he leaned out. I don't know if you know anything about football, but he leaned over to me. And you know how the, they have the down markers, the chains, the two poles, and then there's the third pole that goes wherever the line of scrimmage is and between there? About three-fourths of the way through the game, he leans over and says, what are those sticks that they keep moving up and down the sidelines? And as soon as I tried to just, I don't know if you ever tried to explain American football to somebody. It's like, where do you start? I don't even know where to start, right? And so I opened my mouth and I was like, okay, well, that's the first, okay, wait, I can't say, okay. You know, you got 10 yards. Okay, well, those, you know, I, I just, I was like, I kind of gave up after three minutes. I mean, it was just too much. The whole stadium was so loud. It was just, it was really, really hard. But, it, but it's obvious for this individual to come here, he's a student at the university, for him to be successful, there has to be some degree of learning that, that he does about this culture, right? The amount of learning that he has to do just to watch a sporting event. Folks, do we see ourselves, the nations are at our doorsteps in Iowa City. What a uniquely wonderful opportunity God has blessed us with. And it's obvious that as in, people from different countries come here that they're going to learn how to just navigate and operate in this culture. But what an act of love for us to learn them. If we have any hope of sharing the gospel with anybody, whoever God has placed at our doorstep or next to our house, we need to learn about them. We have to see ourselves as learners as well. This is the move of love. To, to learn what their food tastes like, what cultural practices they have, what their family dynamics and situations are. If we want to communicate the hope of Jesus, but we see them just as a carbon copy of every other human being, good luck. If we want to be effective missionaries right here in Iowa City, we had better, it had better start by us being learners, which means that we have to recognize, first and foremost, we've got area to grow, right? We have stuff that we don't know. It takes a degree of humility and interest and love. And secondly, it takes, it takes a, a degree of sacrifice. Not just we have to be learners, we have to be ready to sacrifice. That our taste, our preference are not the priority. Look at what it costs Timothy to communicate the gospel. Just to keep there from being a barrier. Tremendous sacrifice. Remove whatever sort of unnecessary thing we can that is a stumbling block in front of others that might keep them from hearing the gospel and putting their trust in Jesus. We have to be willing, if we want to effectively roll up our sleeves and participate in this great disciple-making mission, be learners and be ready and willing to sacrifice. 
And then in verse four, it says, as they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. To the churches were strength, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. It's so important for us to recognize that Paul's mission, this is just sort of a, a side note, to strengthen the churches, this is what he intended to do to go there and to care for, to strengthen them, to, to deliver the, the, the observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles. He wanted to be an encouragement to them. But what we also see happen is not just is he going to, to encourage the church, he's going to build and to grow the church. And these two things are not working against themselves. The idea of sort of evangelism and discipleship. I don't like separating those two things out because I don't think they are separate things, but oftentimes we can do that. We can think that you either are the type of church that just cares really well for your people or you're the type of church that's on mission trying to make new disciples. I say, yes, because I think that's what the New Testament says. Yes, you are those kind of churches. It's one and the same. Just an interesting side note. Thirdly and finally, verses six to 10, let's look at the theological work. As we look at the relational work, cultural work, there's also sort of theological work that has to be done. As they spread the gospel of grace, we see that they are following, that following God's guidance is necessary. As they roll up their sleeves to put in the work, following God's guidance is necessary. Look at verse six. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus... Very unusual phrase. The spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. At first, the spirit is saying, no, 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 as they go into these other areas, stopping them, redirecting them. Though it seemed good for them to go, the doors, in reality, had been closed. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced something similar. On paper, it all adds up. It all makes sense. Nothing clearly wrong with it. Find yourself heading in one direction, following what you think is the Lord's leading, only to see a door closed. Opportunities shut down. There are times when the Lord says no in our life because there's something else he intends to say yes to. See, I think that's an important principle for us to remember. Oftentimes when we see a door closed, we can immediately be frustrated or discouraged. But what we see happen in the Bible time and time and time again is that as the Lord shuts one door, many of you know this from experience, what he's doing is opening another door. And the reason that one is being shut is because there's another one he wants you to go through. Now, I love how there's nothing passive about Paul's approach. He's not just sitting around passively waiting for a signpost, for a voice, or even sitting waiting for indication of where to go next. Rather, Paul is simply on the move. As he discerns the Spirit's guidance, it's not a sort of static process, but he's marching forward because he knows that that's what he's been called to do. And then in verse nine, it says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
Paul and his team at Troas on the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea. And Macedonia is on the western shore. And there in the dead of night, Paul sees a remarkable vision. A man pleading for them to come and help. Now, there's all kinds of questions around this text. Questions that have been asked and honestly not answered since. All right. For example, who is the man? Many speculate on who this man might be. No clue. All we know is that it's clear that God is the one who's guiding them. And they, in response, follow his guidance. And as a result, the gospel spreads into Europe. Another question, why Macedonia? Certainly, it was good to go the direction. Those other places needed to be strengthened and needed to hear the gospel too, right? Certainly. We know that eventually they will. Why not other places? But here, now, the door that's opened is the door they want to be walking through, and that's the one to Macedonia. Oh, that God would give us grace and discernment too, to discern his direction and his guidance and the strength to follow as he points. And as they follow his direction, the gospel goes into Macedonia. This is the homeland of Alexander the Great, whose father was Philip of Macedon. Alexander lived in Macedonia, that's where he's from, and he conquered the known world. But here, now, under the guidance of God himself, another king was making his way onto the shores of Macedonia. This king was like one that the world had never seen. He's one who had died on the cross, rose from the dead, and sits this very day enthroned above all kings. And his kingdom is one that will have no end. His reign will last forever. His kingdom of peace is making its way into Europe. His servants have joined him in the, the amazing work of expanding his reign and, and extending his territory. What an awesome sight to see. Who knows, if we follow God as he directs us, who knows what we get to participate in? Who knows what our work looks like and what the fruit of it will be? You know, next week is, as mentioned earlier, is our global outreach weekend where we celebrate what God is doing through this church, through many of you and through our global workers as we seek to make disciples of the nations. And it's a reminder it's a reminder for us. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate and give praise and thanks to God, but it's also, it serves as a regular reminder of our responsibility to roll up our sleeves and to participate in what God is doing. Jesus commands us to go, right? The Great Commission, there's some version of it at the end of every gospel. The beginning of Acts starts off with a sort of rephrasing of it. Over and over again, we are commanded to go. We're reading the book of Acts as they obey this command. Why should we go? Because Jesus commands us to go. Why else should we go? Because his love compels us to go. It's one thing to understand the command of Christ's instruction, but another thing entirely to understand the compulsion of Christ's love. Why should we make disciples of the nations? Because we will if we understand how much Christ has loved us. And as his love works his way through our life, do you know what it produces in us by the power of the Holy Spirit? 
love for others. Just like Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he begins to take his passions and make them ours. And his love works its way out into our life as we share the gospel of Jesus with others. Why should we go? Because Jesus commands us to, because his love compels us to, and finally, because the world needs us to. The world needs us to. Many are perishing in their sin apart from the hope of Jesus all around the world, in our community, in your neighborhood, possibly right next door to you. The man in the vision did not say, Paul, God told you to come. Get over here. That's not how it went. He did not say, likewise, Paul, don't you love me as much as you love them? It's not what he said. No, he said, come to Macedonia and help us. Help us. In conclusion, at the end of this section, we see the first of the we occurrences. I don't know if you picked up on that as we were reading it, but it's the first time that he slips in a we. Now, when Paul, seeing the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Obviously, this is indicating that the narrator, Luke himself, has joined the party. Luke himself has now rolled up his sleeves and has joined them. We'll see him use this throughout the rest of the chapter. He changes to they at the end in verse 40, indicating that he stayed behind in Philippi and that Paul and others went on for Thessalonica. We doesn't show up again until chapter 20 starts and stops several times between 20 and 27. Folks, Luke rolled up his sleeves and jumped in. I think the challenge is for us to do the same. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, join the party. Join the party. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Your salvation does not come down to what you can do but to what Christ has already done. Receive that with the open hands of faith. If you haven't done that, if you, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus, I would love nothing more than to meet with you. After service, Lynn, are you gonna be down here with me? Maybe not. Lisa? Yeah, there we go. There'll be two of us. And if you wanna pray right now, we'll be happy to do that. If you are a follower of Jesus, the challenge is the same. Join the party. Jesus is at work, as we've seen time and time again to this day. And he's enlisting servants who want to roll up their sleeves and put in the work. It's not going to be easy. It will come with a cost, but he guarantees it will be worth it. If you have been sitting on the sideline at this church somewhere else, and you're thinking to yourself, it's time for me to join the party. Where can I serve? How can I make disciples? I'll be up here. I'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Don't miss the opportunity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for just the example we get from your early church of what it looks like to participate in the work that you are doing. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church. Father, help us to be a church that um, is there to comfort one another as we relate to one another. We recognize that relationships can be difficult. They can be messy. Lord, and I pray that, uh, that you would help us to not check out 
of relating to one another or working with another just because of relational strife or difficulties, Lord, but that we would seek healing. Lord, we thank you for your grace and even in our feelings that failings, Lord, that you still use us. We thank you for that. Lord, I also pray that you would help us to, to, to recognize that loving others and winning them to Jesus is the priority. And so I pray you'd help us to be learners as we seek to do that with the world around us. Give us insight into the people that you've placed in our path. Give us a heart to know them, to ask the right questions, to to sacrifice as we do that, to set aside our own preferences, our own tastes, so that we can learn more about our neighbors. Lord, and I pray that you'd help us to be the type of church that follows you wherever you direct us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.